is the Matter of Perspective, geopolitical podcast series of the Danube Institute. My guests today are going to be colleagues of the Danube Institute, Anton Bendarzewski, Director of Research, Tamás Orbán, Senior Research Fellow, and Peter Sitas, Research Fellow. Today, we are going to be discussing a research project that has been conducted by our researchers with the aim of shedding light on the most important military developments in Europe after the collapse of the Soviet Union. There are currently significant changes going on military-wise in Europe, as the war in Ukraine prompts countries to reevaluate their military capabilities and prepare for the new world order that, for now, we are unable to define. My name is Fanny Korpic, I'm also a research fellow at the Danube Institute and today the moderator of our discussion. Thank you for coming. My first question to all of you is how would you describe the changes in the military infrastructure after the end of the Cold War and uh, the disappearance of NATO's common enemy, the Soviet Union? How uh, did they imagine back then how they can continue this alliance? Well, first of all, um, let me start with some small advertisement. As in the last weeks, uh, our researchers at the Institute were working on materials on uh, Uh, basically the military spending and rearmament programs in Europe. It's uh, mostly countries like uh, Poland, Hungary, Romania, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Great Britain, France, and and other uh, important players on uh, European scene. So I really would advise uh, all of our listeners to to go to our website, anubistitude.hu, and check all these materials written in English. And I hope... um, you will find some detailed information about the last 30 years of rearmament in, in Europe. And answering your question, I think we could start with uh, the famous uh, book of uh, Francis Fukuyama, who said uh, that that's the end of the history. And uh, well, that's the title of the book, The End of History and the Last Man. And I think that describes well the uh, processes in the 90s that basically, as you mentioned, the uh, lack of uh, an enemy for NATO and um, some uh, understanding that uh, we reach some level in our history that we will find some kind of global peace uh, now that we don't have um, uh, a communist uh, regime, uh, we don't have a Soviet Union, which was uh, one of two uh, global superpowers. Uh, so now everything will be um, uh, fine. And United States, which uh, took the role as kind of global policeman, will somehow preserve the order and uh, make sure that everything goes well. So I think that was mirrored or that was shown uh, in countries' uh, military expenditure, in countries defense policy nobody was taking care basically of their uh, military sector Uh, countries were decreasing their military expenditures um, and it continued up until beginning of 2000s when um, the world faced new challenges starting with uh, uh, 2001 uh, terrorist attack in um, uh, in united states i'd also add that yes in the first couple of years this was the general sense that endless peace has arrived we don't need any more vast militaries especially uh, in the eastern half of europe where prior uh, to the dissolution of the ussr the uh, warsaw pact has basically forced countries to maintain vast 
huge militaries, which were in many cases riddled with logistical problems with untrained personnel and outdated weaponry. Nevertheless, they were uh, huge military forces, so they were happy to get rid of them and um, make their uh, their spending more efficient. But just in a couple of years, Europe was kind of reminded that war still exists as um, the Balkans have shifted into the uh, first Yugoslav wars and then... Um, then later in the second half of the 90s, the uh, second, the Kosovo War, which really was kind of a first operation, joint operation for NATO, where it could uh, try itself out with, and, and the help of the um, new members and all the members who aspired to become uh, full members later, because not only uh, the Central European, the Visegrad countries joined uh, in the operations, but also uh, Romania, Bulgaria, so all the other countries who were only aspirants. And then uh, started the wars on terror, which was something of wholly different scale. But not even that really led for the European members to consider serious armament projects. Because the wars on terror, meaning Iraq and Afghanistan, meant very different things for America and Europe. You know, spending on combat is much more expensive than spending on humanitarian or peacekeeping missions. So during this time, there was this so-called two-tiered alliance of contributors that emerged. There was the United States that spent huge amounts of money on its foreign ventures and there were the small European members who tried to avoid uh, responsibility just about where they could. And precisely because they thought they felt like there were no external threats to them anymore. Their, the Russian threat was uh, decreasing by every year in Europe during the 90s, during the uh, 2000s. And... Um, and they just didn't have the means, the power, nor the will to significantly venture uh, outside overseas for political gains. And um, what about the former Soviet allies? I mean, they wanted to integrate into NATO, but how could they do this whilst trying to decrease their military expenditure? Well, let's first, let's get back to what Anton has said about Fukuyama. And he's absolutely right that there was a euphoria in the beginning of the 90s that the world has ended. But on the other hand, it's always uh, the dichotomy. Sorry, uh, the world has ended in a good term, right? Apocalyptical terms. The dichotomy between practice and theory and which influences which, which leads which, it's, it dates back even earlier, so I think it was Morgenthau and the realist who wrote it down that never the theory is what makes the practical things, but it should be on the contrary. So what we see in a practical world, we should deduct our theories from that. And maybe I think there was a little slip in, in, in uh, Fukuyama's work uh, in this field and even our world today reflects that. In the but but yes, there was the euphoria in the beginning of the 90s, and not just in the western part of the world, but I think in in the Soviet Union as well, because the people they wanted to get rid of their former comrades and they wanted to live a life on a higher 
level in, in, in every field, and we wanted to do the same also. Uh, on the other hand, it, it was a naive thing that, uh, and a naive, naive idea that uh, we will just stop warring with each other and uh, the force as a, as a continuation of the politics will disappear from our life. And a clear uh, sign of that was Yugoslavia, as my colleague has just said, that the bloody war broke out and almost took a decade. And also in the in the neighborhoods, so Czech, the example of Czechoslovakia. So the Czechs and Slovaks they showed an, an example how to separate, uh, how to separate in a normal manner, in an intelligent manner. But it's not true that they stopped spending on 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 military. They they did try to reduce the capabilities of uh, of production. They closed down factories. Because the theory said that this will show the world a peaceful Czechoslovakia. I remember Václav Havel was the president of the federal state at the time, uh, winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. So he really he wanted to show the world how the, the democratic decision of the country is true. And really, they closed down factories. But what remained and what, what followed it, they, they simply lost markets because a vacuum in the international relation occurs and immediately it's filled. So those traditional markets, which were filled by the Czechoslovak armament industry, which was on a really high level at that time, especially compared to Eastern standards, they, they lost a lot of markets. And on the other hand, factories closed down, people lost their, lost their uh, workplaces. And it also was a drop in the, in the glass, which at the end resulted in the, in the separation of the two nations. On the other hand, uh, if, we, if we go steps, if we make one move and, and start to think about Czechia and Slovakia as, as actors, as individual actors, we can say that, for example, the Slovaks in the first few years, they even exceeded the NATO, NATO uh, expenditure which is usually the, this uh, is two percent what they what they want the countries to spend on military because they they was one year which was I think three point seven so they wanted to show uh, they they played the played the game at the the mature government they didn't know that they want to go east they want to go west but they wanted to show the NATO that they are here and and uh, and and also a new army had to be rebuilt because the federal army was was uh, also put into or, or tear tore into, into into parts and another other hand it was also a question and it's a bigger question and it and it goes far beyond the central european region that, that the future of nato and it it the question emerged at that time because if there is no warsaw pact organization do we need a nato after that and i think the dot to this, to the end of this sentence, can be given just now, when Sweden and Finland, after a long, long, after long, long years of of uh, uh, independence, decided that they want to be part of this. So this is in the first round what I I, I can add to it. We, we we the world was was such a dangerous place at that time as it is now. Maybe maybe 
the communication was on a, on a on a better level, especially after the disintegration of the Soviet Union. Sorry, let, let me just want add one thing regarding Europe, uh, if we are focusing now on, on Europe. <clears throat> that for, for Europe, it was a very comfortable thing to just say that, okay, now everything is safe. And on the other hand, there is United States, which will protect us. Uh, we have this nuclear defense umbrella above us. So uh, we don't have to spend um, uh, billions of, of, of uh, money, euros on military uh, anymore. Uh, we can spend it on R&D, we can spend it on education, on uh, uh, industry, and, and, and so on. Um, so I, I think, um, um, let's say maybe um, not everybody followed the thought of uh, Francis Fukuyama at that time, but still it was a very comfortable idea that uh, uh, we we do not have to spend on, uh, any more on our military. And uh, let's, um, uh, let's just uh, say that uh, Washington will, will, any, uh, will do it for us and then we can, uh, we can prosper and we can uh, develop um, through spending all this money to other uh, sectors of our economy. And also, if I may react, so the question is, um, so Anton mentioned nuclear protection and, 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 and protection as one. Protection against who? After the, the Warsaw Pact organization's disintegration, after the Soviet Union's disintegration, against who do we need the protection? So maybe the, the, there were many, many conflicts which during the 40 years of socialism was, was absolutely turned down and... Just, just the question of Hungary, the Hungarians living outside the territory of the Hungary after the peace treaty. So there were tensions and there were questions, what is going on in the future and how can, can we evade the fate of, for example, Yugoslavia? So it, it, it wasn't given. And, 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 and also we, we only can see that, yes, the United States had a special role, which they were more than happy to fulfill. On the, on the other hand, it's always a question if you have a bilateral conflict with your neighbor, then what the will of the real decision maker will be. So that's, 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 that's I think, also in, in interesting, interesting points when we are trying to understand what happened here 20 or 13 or 30 years before. So just one reaction, yes. And uh, we also have to take in mind that uh, this is exactly the time of uh, further integration of, of Europe, right? So uh, also the idea was there in the in the air, and this is a, quite a correct idea that uh, by further integration, by uh, um, combining together all these nations, we will also um, stop conflicts between them, right? So everybody was thinking that we were neighbors, we were uh, fighting each other for centuries, and now as we we are part of one um, uh, one unity or one union, common uh, union, uh, we won't have to fight against each other. So we don't need to. Um, to spend money for development of our military. Yes, and also that was the need from the side of the society because they have they wanted to get rid of, for example, the conscription system. No one wanted to go for military service for two years, which uh, as far as it can be heard from our parents or grandparents, it wasn't as effective as, for example, it is nowadays in Israel or, or countries which they keep this system up. They, they just wanted to get rid of military. We didn't want to 
make war. <laughs> we wanted to make business. We wanted to raise our standard of living. And 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 uh, the borders open. So we just wanted to, or or uh, our our parents one wanted to go through these borders and 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 travel freely and live a happy life. But how naive it turned out to be to expect the world to go forward without any wars. You know, the core concept of NATO was this this concept of political solidarity in terms of need when crisis emerge, external threats. And uh, that's what burden sharing is for, because you can't exercise this this solidarity. You can't turn this into action without the abilities to, um, without interoperability. And interoperability equals uh, burden sharing plus simultaneous technological developments. If my neighbors continue to upgrade their tanks and I don't, there will come a point when we just can go forward together we can even refuel our tanks with the same type of equipment this is what the alliance lacks even today they have because this is well, yes this is not a time when we are finally learning that we really would have benefited from a more uh, common approach of military modernization and not lagging behind, as Anton said, under the comfortable umbrella of the United States. And also we could see, just, just one more thing to add, that we could see that the United States also showed the, the possibility of a danger in this bilateral relationship, so the, the neighborhoods. And that's why they, not forced, but make it clear that if anyone wants to join NATO, has to be in a good partnership with its neighbor. That's why uh, also Hungary, Slovakia, Romania had to sign these basic treaties, the countries among, and they had to state that they do not have any kind of inquiries regarding territories from from each other. And uh, moving on to the 2000s, you mentioned these uh, terms that uh, war on terror, the uh, terror attack in New York, um, and also uh, how the NATO wanted to uh, enhance interoperability. Uh, and in this framework, the out-of-area missions uh, became more um, common within the NATO because people thought that in Europe uh, there is no war, we don't have to use our military capabilities there. And for these missions, countries believed, with the lead of, of the US, that... Um, Highly trained military personnel is absolutely essential. High precision weaponry is also essential. So how did these countries on the eastern flank of, of NATO uh, change their military spending in this uh, regard? And how could they um, level up their um, former militaries that were based on this conscription system uh, where the weaponry was old and not um, widely used in uh, real war situations and also the humanitarian aid part of these um, uh, these things that they had to go out uh, there to distribute it and also the peacekeeping missions they needed a different kind of military in the 2000s if i may start uh, when hungary czech republic and poland entered the nato the next day the war on Kosovo or the bombings of Kosovo started. And Hungary at that time had to experience what it is to give its airspace 
under the control of a completely other state. Because that was the real situation that if the American planes were flying, the Hungarians were not able to because they used the other the technology of the of the of the enemy. We can we can say that. So and also also there was the the first round of the of the enlargement process and Czechia, Hungary, Poland they entered to the NATO and they had to spend immediately on on their armed forces because as we have mentioned before, so this 2% is an expectation from the NATO. None of the countries were able to do that, or, or Poland for one or two years maybe, but but it wasn't a standard because it's, it's a really expensive task to develop the army. And on the other hand, the politician's role was maybe also to develop the standard of living of the people and this had to go somehow hand in hand. So, but the first, for for example, the first procurements when Hungary bought the Gripen planes, 14 of them, and after Czechia followed the Hungarian example because they all also did the same. In the in case of Slovakia, they were left out from the first enlargement procedure and absolutely they cut the military spending. They were focusing on something else and the first wave of uh, modernizing the military was around uh, 2015 when they started to operate a Black Hawk squadron. And now the country is waiting for the F-16 planes because it seems that we will get or the country will get rid of the the MiG-29 fulcrums which they currently operate. So we are again in the process of... of, of uh, big expenditures, but I think that's the... I'd like to add that that um, professionalization of the armed forces and the um, initial uh, modernization programs that you've mentioned were not really the result of overseas ventures, such as the wars and terrorists. They were primarily the results of um, spending efficiency and being part of NATO. When countries... Yes, but the role of NATO changed. The role of NATO changed, yes. But um, Eastern European countries uh, had very little to do with uh, all the overseas wars of the United States. They they usually picked the lowest risk humanitarian missions they could possibly get. They were criticized um, uh, for it. I mean, Western Europe even more, I think. But for professionalization, the the main argument was that as part of NATO, we really need to upgrade some of our equipment to make it NATO compatible. And uh, in order to be able to operate the newest equipments, we need uh, personnel that uh, spend more time in the military than a couple of months and who are also materially motivated to learn how to properly um, operate the equipment. Otherwise, we could, we, we would just spoil all the money we've spent on it. And um, also it's just um, easier and somewhat cheaper to maintain a small professional force rather than a huge conscription-based force. I would like to add that uh, oh, when we are speaking about countries in Central Europe, which were uh, either part of the Soviet Union or part of the Eastern Bloc. Um, 
all these countries were right on, let's say, on the borderline of uh, Iron Curtain. And uh, during the era, during the Soviet era for decades, these countries were quite heavily militarized by the Soviet Union because, well, because uh, the Soviet Union were expecting some kind of uh, potential clash between the West and, uh, and the East. And for, for example, for Hungary, there was also a threat coming from Yugoslavia because Yugoslavia was also considered at, at least at, at some point uh, to be an enemy of the Soviet Union, right? So Hungary was building a defense system in the South. Hungary was uh, preparing for some kind of uh, war uh, uh, with these uh, Western countries or, or Yugoslavia. And when the Soviet Union collapsed, all what these countries and Hungary wanted to do is just to get rid of all this uh, uh, Soviet military from uh, all this um, uh, um, conscription-based troops, because at that time Hungary, for example, had uh, over 150,000 people uh, in the army, and it was reduced uh, down to 45,000 in uh, uh, 2000s, and then it was uh, further reduced uh, by 2009. It was only 25,000 of people from 155 in 1989. So, uh, but the same happened to the military equipment. Uh, it was um, uh, what well, the country was dismantling the weapons. Uh, the army was downsizing. Uh, the equipment was not uh, uh, well. The military, the military service was not modernized, and uh, actually by 2010, the uh, spending, the military spending, uh, went below one percent of of GDP. Uh, so that was the the trend because uh, well, Hungary had uh, decades of of uh, this kind of militarization, and uh, and. After Soviet Union, what Hungary wanted to do is just to get rid of uh, uh, of uh, all this um, military-based, uh, uh, let's say, ideology and uh, uh, defense strategy. Um, and the change started only uh, after 2013, 14, when new defense strategy was was created. Uh, in 2016, uh, there was um, a new milita military program adopted as really 2026 and i think it was uh, my colleagues will probably elaborate on that but it was similar in other countries as well so this is the time around 2015 2016 when uh, all other countries started to to change their their approach and starting uh, started new rearmament programs and why is that well <laughs> because first of all we had uh, the war in Georgia in 2009, uh, 2008, sorry. Um, and then um, we had uh, uh, the Arab Spring in 2011, which um, resulted um, a migration, migration crisis uh, in 2015. And of course, there was Crimea uh, in 2014. So all these events, let's say, happened within a few years. Uh, when nobody was expecting, basically, uh, uh, this kind of shift in uh, in in world order, this shift in uh, global um, approach, uh, and suddenly all these countries 
thought or, or found out that uh, now we have to change our defense approach as well and we have to do something with our military. Yes, I can I can just, just confirm what Anton has said. In the case of uh, Czechoslovakia, for example, I have data from 1987 and at that time the Czechoslovak army had 201,000 people in arms and now Czech in the data data of Czechia it's around 35,000 Slovakia 30, uh, 24,000 so not even one third of that number which I have told and yes Anton is, ab is absolutely right about that we wanted to get rid of the whole military way of thinking and we also got rid of the infrastructure because because these countries were militarized they had many many equipment and they said that they won't be needed in the new wars other type of uh, assets will be needed these are outdated old things and didn't take into consideration that if a war breaks out so the enemy will have the same type of equipment and and despite of that uh, these countries were demilitarized. So, for example, this can this may lead into the situation that Slovakia currently has four MiGs which are able to fly, and probably they are cannibalized from those eight which they have somewhere stored. So, maybe we, we were so optimistic about the future, maybe so many people read Fukuyama, that, that <laughs> we are now in a completely different situation and this will be expensive. Yes, and, and the expenses started to rise again around the middle of the 2010s, as Anton mentioned, uh, that uh, countries started to spend more on military. They uh, started to modernize their military equipment. And now what we can um, see is uh, they are proven right, in a way. Uh, those countries that uh, started this modernization process five years ago or uh, or seven years ago um, what kind of equipment did they buy or produce um, that you consider as as important in in the years to come it's quite different from country to country so for example hungary is making its bet on german type of uh, military equipment so we are we have a procurement process on buying German um, equipment up until 2026. So we are actually in the middle of, of uh, we as Hungary, we are in the middle of rearmament program, uh, meaning that now we are in our weakest position because we don't have uh, proper equipment now because it was uh, conservated or uh, sold or uh, dismantled. Uh, and we are still waiting for uh, for new equipment. But some countries are making their bet on American American weapons. Um, some countries uh, like Poland, they are even buying South Korean weapons. So, well, one thing which we can say that uh, we, uh, at least in European Union, that there there is no country which is buying Russian military weapons, right? Uh, there are some exceptions uh, for, for example, Serbia or Turkey. Uh, but uh, <laughs> within European Union, there's uh, exactly an opposite trend. We are trying to get rid of uh, old Soviet type or Russian military weapons, and we are changing it on Western type of weapons. In case of Romania, but which I examined, it's it's a huge huge mix. I mean, um, just like all the other countries, Romania announced its biggest ever modernization program in 2017, which 
comprised of over 2,000 separate programs, 16 of which uh, goes uh, above 100 million euros. And um, these include uh, 52 fighter jets from, um, from the US, 270 main battle tanks from Germany, four corvettes from uh, and and a submarine from France. So it's it's a huge mix, but also it's worth to point out that intentions were very serious, but they didn't quite really feel the the, um, the weight of the risk uh, coming out of Russia. Mm-hmm. So while these plans were announced and. Uh, and uh, and um, politicians seemed very serious about going through with it. Nothing really happened the way they wanted it. I mean, from 24 programs, only three have been completed so far. Nine have been completely cancelled. Um, six are still waiting uh, parliamentary approval. And uh, so far, out of the uh, 52 jets... They wanted to um, buy until 2020. Only 17 have been bought. No tanks whatsoever. Uh, no corvettes. No submarines. Um, but at least out of the 500 uh, armored personal carriers, Romania wanted to uh, acquire uh, 68. <laughs> Finally arrived. So these are not really great results. But um, at least we have the programs on paper. Romania has a program of paper, and because of the war in Ukraine, the focus has really shifted back on these programs. So just just to add something that Thomas is saying that uh, the programs were announced, but they were not really taken uh, seriously. That's also because the society also did not fully support all these uh, changes. I remember in Hungary when uh, in 2016 the Zrini uh, 2026 was announced, and uh, it was so much criticized. Uh, mainly from the opposition, but uh, not just opposition. And people were saying that why we need to spend for all these weapons, others con- other countries are not spending, uh, we should rather um, increase the, the salary of the teachers, of uh, pay more, I don't know, for, uh, for some other workers. And uh, of course, yes, we need to probably <laughs> sp- uh, spend uh, on teachers and, and so on. But uh, now uh, it it was proven that we need to maintain our military and we need to to do it. So actually, uh, it was uh, quite good that Hungary started six years ago uh, the new rearmament program because if we didn't do it, now we would be in a really big trouble. We have to understand that military procurement never goes in a way that the generals create a shopping list and the politicians make the purchase because there are always important political factors, political decisions behind. And when Donald Trump became the president of the United States, he made it clear for the states that he expects them to buy American products. And and as my colleagues said, Romania, Hungary, also Slovakia, they also, the prime minister entered the White House and 
uh, treaties were signed. So that, that's that's one thing of it. On the other hand, and also it can be seen, for example, Serbia. In case of Serbia, they are buying now Chinese equipment. So it's never, never you you never only buy military equipment, but you also buy something with it, which is hard to hard to say what it really is, but can be maybe seen in the future. And also that's the case, for example, in case of Turkey, which is a NATO state and bought the S-400 Russian system. And also this is the case of Hungary, who, for example, bought the German technology, but also they established factories in the country for they are going to buy heavy artillery systems here in Hungary, but also the Airbus started uh, factory and production. So it, it, it also has, a, has an economic economic side of the story and also this is the case of of the procurements which we can see in the last 30 years so hungary was among uh, was criticized a lot when they decided to buy the sub uh, airplanes the the the, the gripans and after that czechia went on the same road but we have to understand that for example operate uh, gripan it's the price of it is the half than if you want to operate an F-35. So for example, now Czechia decided to to buy, or, or media, media report says that decided to buy the fifth generation US made F-35A jets. And 24 of them, which will make the Czech Air Force one of the most capable in the region. On the other hand, these jets are extremely expensive. So you have to have, I don't know, more than a dozen or two dozen people who work on the plane just to be able to, to fly. So these are, we are talking about huge cost in the fact that Slovakia is the same. So big media pressure was on the government in 2018 to follow the Hungarian and the Czech example and make a deal with Saab. But they decided to buy the 14 F-16 jets with this block 7072 configuration. And why did they, they, they decided to do so? They say that the the offers were closed. On the other hand, Donald Trump was sitting in the Oval Office. So who knows what is in the behind? It, we, we have to, and, and also Sweden at that time wasn't member of the NATO. They aren't members today, but maybe they will members tomorrow. So uh, there are many, many factors which you have to take into consideration when you, when you make uh, these, these uh, steps, when you buy this equipment. And also you have to use it after that because these are not bought for one or two years. This will heavily influence the capabilities of a country in the next one, two or even more decades. Yes, and I think now we can land on the war in Ukraine, um, how this um, situation, new situation relatively in Europe uh, changes the military mindset of European allies and also the whole of NATO. Um, what would you say um, changed in the capitals of these um, Central European countries after the Ukrainian uh, war? And how do they um, plan to change their military capabilities 
in this regard that regular warfare is back on the continent? Well, I think the main change is, is the change of the mindset of the society. Because um, as, as we were talking before, uh, the change in defense strategy and rearmament uh, was already happening in the middle of 2010s, right after, after Crimea and uh, the migration crisis and, and so on. And, but the society was, was not fully supporting it because it didn't see uh, any threat coming from, let's say, from Russia. And this changed completely since the war has started in, in Ukraine because now the society is afraid, they are afraid of potential um, war between uh, between the NATO and Russia. Um, and actually, uh, now Russia is officially our number one enemy because after the Madrid summit uh, of, of NATO, uh, it was placed in, uh, in NATO's uh, strategic document that now uh, that's Russia is number one threat, meaning that's our number one enemy. So it, when now, as we have a clear enemy, we have to prepare for it, right? Um, so this 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 has changed, and I think it is also um, uh, sped up speed up the um, uh, the re re rearmament programs. So what was uh, intended to be done in let's say ten years now was reduced to just a few years. Um, Germany has announced a huge military program uh, consisting of uh, 100 billion euros. The Germany, which, well, which started the World War II and nobody was expecting... Well, if Germany would announce such program a few years ago, everybody would be shocked. Uh, now, <laughs> now we, nobody was shocked because, uh, well, they were uh, expecting uh, countries like Germany and France to, uh, to help to, to be online with defense spending. So uh, I think uh, uh, the war has has shown us, uh, uh, let's say, the the, the stakes. Uh, it changed the mindset of uh, society, and definitely it uh, it has sped up the the process of rearmament. Which I'm not sure if it's good or not. Probably not, but uh, that's what's happening. That's what I wanted to talk about because yes, we see that everybody's speeding up their procurement programs, but this also causes a massive global arms race and is this sort of like a paradox of defense spending because if you think about it it's a spiral right but uh, no, i know spiral. i what i want to talk about is that it has like two sides if you're underdeveloped military wise it puts a target on your back and um, that prompts war but if you uh, engage in excessive defense spending that um results in uh, uh arms race and that prompts war so is is war really avoidable where is the balance where's the fine balance where where you know um you can still pose great level of deterrence to external threats but still don't fuel the uh, regional or global arms well, race well there's the classical security dilemma yeah right uh <laughs> Unlike Anton, I am neither the, an expert of Ukraine, neither Ukraine nor Russia. I just want to add one, two things that I think no European countries wants to see Russia as their enemy. 
and 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 um, and that's why in my opinion many of them what what the governments are doing it's uh it's i i i find it a little bit illogical uh the clear example for this is is slovakia because they had one air defense system and they donated to ukraine now they are talking about donating these four fly capable airplanes to ukraine and they are worried about uh, buying new uh, Zuzana Hovitzers, these are Slovak-made uh, equipment, and to to donate them to Ukraine. So it's it's uh, it's kind of weird in my eyes that on the one hand, uh, the Slovak-Ukrainian relationships, if we look back 10 or 20 years, weren't, uh, weren't bad, but weren't as good as they are today. And it's also, I, I would like to talk with the generals who, who if, if they were asked or, or what did they say behind closed doors when the political decision was made to completely get rid of a country's air defense and donate it to a neighboring country's to a neighboring country. Well, so they expect something better instead of it, right? Yes, they expect something better. And and this is what I was talking before, that we don't know what, on the one hand, the military procurements, and on the other hand, what comes in hand with it. Uh, it's uh, Maybe it's it's impolite to talk to home, but, but what Hungary is doing, I, I find it logical. On the other hand, I see that, for example, in the Western world, it's 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 not a popular step that we that we initiate the peace and we want to bring the peace. It's also Anton may ask, and you would be right that what peace means and what is peace for. Exactly, everybody wants peace, but but how? Yeah, yes, I mean, and what in, what are the conditions? Oh, well, yeah, exactly. I I find it a little bit funny when when um, countries like Slovakia, Czechia, or even Hungary wants to sanction the Russian Federation, which is hundred times bigger than they are, and there's a one-way dependency on them. On uh, the other hand, if you take together Russian economy, which is uh, 1.6 or 7 trillion uh, dollars, and compare it with European Union's economy, which is like 12 times more, then it makes sense to... Yes, and I, I just want to repeat myself that I'm not, I'm not an expert of the field, just... Uh, the question is if 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 these uh, economic differences uh, are present on the on the battlefield as well, because we both know that, for example, Germany is the engine of Europe and it's highly the most most uh, developed and and industrialized country of Western Europe. But on the other hand, there is a heavily de- heavy dependency on on the on the Russian material. So, so the and and to get back to the beginning of the conversation. So after the after the end of the Soviet Union and after the end of this bipolar era, maybe the world believed that or or Europe believed that we will go hand in hand. So I think the first was in the history Stalin and then uh, Putin, President Putin, who wanted to join Russia or. or before the Soviet Union to the NATO. So there were that kind of talks, which of course didn't succeed. 
what I, I think is we are living in a really dangerous world and 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 really the the decision making should be should should reflect that and should reflect that more than it some kind some some cases can be seen yeah so uh, what we can uh, see is that um, military development and military expenditure is uh, becoming a more important issue uh, in in Europe than it was before and that is because of the global political situation that uh, we encounter Anton Benderzewski, Tamás Orbán, Peter Sitas, thank you for uh, sharing your valuable thoughts with our audience. This was the Matter of Perspective geopolitical podcast series of the Danube Institute. If you'd like to listen to more content like this, stay tuned for our upcoming episodes that you will be able to find on Spotify, Google Podcasts and iTunes. And follow our social media channels to be informed of our new research materials and upcoming events. And of course, thank you, Fanny Korpic, for this great moderation. Thank you. Thank you.